This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to Raw Beauty Talks. I'm your host, Erin Trelore. Ready to peer behind the highlight reel and all those polished pictures of the world's biggest influencers and wellness experts, we're going to uncover what beauty, health, and wellness truly means in today's world. As someone who really struggled with disordered eating and negative body image, I became a health coach because I'm passionate about redefining health and wellness so that it's less about the weight on the scale and more about how we feel. Let's pull back the curtain for some raw beauty talks. Ooh, this is honestly one of my favorite conversations that we've had on the Raw Beauty Talks podcast. We have personal trainer, body positive activist, Kelsey Ellis joining us. But before we dive into that conversation, we had a really full circle moment happen this week. On February 14th, Valentine's Day, Victoria's Secret released their new campaign for their cloud bra. And oh my God, it featured... Some more diversity in regards to the women who were included in the advertising campaign. We saw different body types. We saw different skin colors. We even saw a different age range than what we're used to with Victoria's Secret. And I have to say, it felt really good to me. And I'm going to read some of the comments that were left on an Instagram reel that I created because I loved hearing everybody's thoughts about this. But here's my initial thought. When I was 16, these Victoria's Secret models were everything to me. I was like, this is the definition of beauty. They were tall. They were quote unquote fit. I mean, now that I know what they were going through and putting their bodies through, I'm like, I don't know if it was 100% healthy, but I idolized them. I thought this was the definition of sexy. And I remember Googling what their weights were, what their workouts were, what they were eating. I remember watching that show and just loving it and and I actually remember one time watching it and trying to do sit-ups throughout the whole show like so that my abs would look like their abs. I used these girls as motivation. Now, this quickly spiraled into an eating disorder. And of course, an eating disorder wasn't only caused by the Victoria's Secret fashion show, but I don't know, it absolutely contributed to this ideal of what beauty looked like and what I wanted my body to look like. And so to see this new campaign come out like a kabillion jillion years later, and probably like one of the last major companies to do it, it felt like a huge win. Now, am I going to shop at Victoria's Secret? I don't think I'm quite there yet. Do I feel this huge difference and sense of redemption and like they've completely converted into this for the woman brand? Absolutely not. But regardless, I'm excited about the direction that they're going for the future generations of girls and women. We can't have enough of diversity in advertising. So let me read a couple of the thoughts that you shared over on Instagram Thank you so much to everyone who took the time to leave a comment, 
I mean, Raw Beauty Talks really was started to be a conversation. So I always read through all of the comments and absolutely love having you part of this conversation. So at Katie H. Wilcox said, you can't fake authenticity, but you can use marketing to manipulate sales. And this one was, I think 110 people liked this comment. I think the overall feeling from a lot of people is it's too little, too late. You haven't actually extended your sizing. We still are seeing primarily straight sizes. This feels like it was done to increase sales. We all know Victoria's Secret is, I've heard that they were bankrupt several times, but they're they're on that line. So, you know, we all, we all kind of know that they're doing this so that they can hopefully keep the business afloat. But it, yeah, it just feels like too little, too late, and like they're not actually doing it for authentic reasons. Okay, so Courtney Rose underscore recovers says, love, love, love this and definitely a step in the right direction. Although the crap their CEO has said and done in the past and the way they've treated their models has forever put me off of them. Hope they continue to move in the right direction though. Okay, one thing I noted in the post was that it was the first time Victoria's Secret had a model who has Down syndrome and a transgender model. Now, in the post, I wrote transgendered, and Tanya Hubbard Counseling very politely let me know that the term isn't actually transgendered. It's often considered offensive, and the correct term is trans or transgender. So I just wanted to share that all with you. I learned something, and she also shared a really helpful link on there that really breaks this down and explains this so that we can all be better allies. And so you can go to the social page. I'll link to that down below to learn a little bit more. And then I also said in the post that this really, you know, my celebration of the new models had nothing to do with the old models, that they are all wonderful and I'm sure they're, you know, great, gorgeous human beings, Um, that it really isn't about that. It's about diversity in marketing. And so Joanna Elizabeth says, I really love that you took the time to address that those angels in 04 are still beautiful. They upheld those unhealthy beauty standards to get work and to survive in their industry. This new campaign really, truly is beautiful. So again, this isn't about the old models or shaming or bashing other women, but it is about businesses that are making money and profiting from us, really being inclusive and celebrating all different body types. So I feel a really big sense of relief for my 16-year-old self in seeing this new campaign from VS. And I also feel a big sense of relief for my daughter and actually a lot of relief for my son as well, that he won't be growing up with these images of what sexy looks like being defined in such a linear way. You know, I'm very aware that these images And this definition of what sexy was, was really focused on attracting men and not necessarily just about the women. And so that impacts not only us, but um, the men out there as well. So I think this is a win for everybody. It's it's not necessarily going to win everybody over, but it's still a step in the right direction. I'm also going to use this as an opportunity to thank brands like Thinks and Mary Young, who have designed and created beautiful, sexy underwear and lingerie for women. It was created by women and where none of this was ever even a part of the conversation. So little plug for those ones there. 
Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals for a second. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that really don't help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversation, and Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teachings so you're ready to practice what you learned in the real world. If you're heading to another country, anytime soon, start using Babbel a few weeks before you go to learn basics like how to order food, ask for directions, speak to merchants without having to consult language apps while you're away. So fun. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash raw beauty talks. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash talks. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Lola V, an award-winning hair care line founded by the fabulous Jennifer Aniston. Jen got tired of the same old struggle we all face, choosing between hair products that work and ones that are actually good for us. With Lola V, that dilemma is history. We all put our hair through the ringer. That's why it's crucial to have products that not only repair the look of the damage, but also shield your locks from future harm. Enter Lola V's bestsellers, the Glossing Detangler and the Perfecting Leave-In Conditioner. They're your hair's new best friend. Friends. For a limited time, you get 15% off your entire order at lolavie.com. Just use the code RAWBEAUTYTALKS at checkout. Lolavie is all about naturally derived plant-based goodness, no silicone, sulfates, parabens, or gluten, and of course, cruelty-free and vegan. That's 15% off your order at lolavie.com with promo code RAWBEAUTYTALKS. You can only use one promo code per order and discounts can't be combined. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Tell them I sent you a over. All right, let's dive into today's conversation. I'm curious, just take a moment to think a little bit about your past relationship with health and wellness. And I want you to consider whether you've ever done anything for your health that turned out to be not so healthy. So when I think about this, things come to mind like counting calories frequent high-intensity workouts, ignoring hunger signals by chewing gum, drinking water. I used to drink Diet Coke excessively. Oh, can't even imagine doing that now. Uh, Working out even when I was tired or if I was sick, doing cleanses, cutting out carbs. I mean, I did so many things in the name of wellness that absolutely wreaked havoc on my body. So in this episode, I am talking to Kelsey Ellis, who is an incredible personal trainer, holistic nutritionist, and body acceptance coach. And we're going to discuss five common wellness myths that actually do more harm than good. Kelsey, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me here today, Erin. I'm stoked to be here. Before we dive into some really common wellness myths that you are going to bust for us today, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and how you came to be this health and wellness professional who is working with so many women and sharing your expertise. Were you, have you always been all about health and wellness? 
Well, I was an athlete from a young age. Uh, you know, at the age of six, I joined my first softball team. And from the age of six until I was 21 years old, I played softball. And I have played organized sports my entire life. So I feel like to some degree, I've always been within health and wellness. But it wasn't until I finished my college experience and I came home and I really started to unlearn being an athlete and what that meant for staying healthy and well as an adult for the rest of my life. You're being very humble. You were on a full ride scholarship and playing softball in Boston and crushing it over there before you finished. So you were a highly competitive athlete. And I'm curious to know, because we haven't actually talked about this a lot on the show, When you are an athlete, like there's no intuitive movement and no mindful movement. Like you're having to push your body in ways to make it perform and to have yourself perform for the team. And so I can only imagine that there's a lot of unlearning that is required once you come out of that landscape and you no longer have the training schedule and the coach and the teammates there rallying behind you. When you were in university and playing at such a high level sport, what did health and wellness look like to you then? Structured. My whole life was structured in terms of when I would have classes, when I would have weight training, when I would have practice, when I would have morning runs, how long, how much, how heavy. We didn't talk about the benefits of exercise beyond how my body would perform in order to help the team win. Up until that point, I had no idea that there was anything beyond that. When it comes to health and wellness, and I became so conditioned to push my body to its absolute maximum all the time. And rest and recovery were words that we just didn't really use a lot of or were looked down upon as being a sign of weakness. And Mm. so I love that we are talking about this today because it isn't something that is, you know, well-spoken about, which is that transitioning from being a competitive athlete into a healthy, sustainable way of moving for the rest of your life, there's no guide. And so a lot of athletes are left feeling like, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to continue going down that path. So, you know, they go for those long runs and they push themselves to the maximum. And then they end up with, you know, long-term chronic injuries, unhealthy relationship with exercise that's rooted in resentment and using exercise as a way to punish themselves. I am in the process of continuing to unlearn that. Even now in all the work that I've done, I constantly have to keep reminding myself, like, what are you competing against? Yeah. What do you mean when you say that they're moving their body and it's all it's rooted in resentment? Mm-hmm. Resentment towards what? Towards a lot of different things. I think, you know, and I can only speak from my own personal experience, but this idea of exercise, you know, as a college athlete often was used as a form of punishment. So, you know, if you miss the ball, you have to go for a run. If we lost, everybody is doing push-ups. You know, we are getting up at 6 a.m. because the team was caught drinking last night. So everybody is going to be on the line running, you know, the suicide drill until they puke. So exercise for me was this form of punishment and it made me absolutely hate running. I've been an athlete my entire life and I can lift super heavy and I can jump really high, but I can't run worth shit. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so I hated feeling like I was always lagging behind and that if I wasn't running fast enough to keep up with everybody else, then I was going to let other people down. So there was always this weight on my shoulders of carrying the team. For me, that always felt like I had to put myself aside and what I liked about wellness and health and exercise in order to do what I was told to make sure that I didn't let anybody down. And that be- I became resentful towards. I mean, this is just so interesting because this year my husband set a big goal for himself to do a 70.3 Ironman. And so I am over here moving my body intuitively, which for me often looks like a low impact 20 minute yoga or Melissa would work out because that's what I can fit in right now. And ultimately what is good for my body with anxiety. And, and then I've got my husband over here who is like, doing drills on the bike and swimming and then going out for these long runs and his ankle sore, but he has to go anyways. And I'm like, wow, we are at opposite ends of the spectrum right now. And it's really made me think about one of these ways right. And all I can think is, I know what feels right for me. I'm not competing for anything right now. I'm not in a race. My husband, though, has set a goal for himself that requires him to not just move intuitively, but to have some structure and some focus. And that feels right for him right now. What's interesting is that in the world of health and wellness, we seem to have this idea that what Scott is doing, the structure, the pushing, the testing your limits, the extreme exertion, that that is healthy and that is well. And that is the like ideal health and wellness. What I've started to wonder is, I don't know. I feel like in some ways what I'm doing right now is healthier for me. And maybe that's healthier for him, but perhaps you know, health can be defined in so many different ways. When you look back at your time as an athlete in structured sport, do you think that you were healthy? To a certain degree, it taught me a lot of things. I think I was really taught to understand, you know, discipline. However, I don't think that that is necessarily a requirement of structured exercise. So I yes, I learned how to, you know, get up early, to have goals, to attain them, to show up even when things were uncomfortable. But at the same time, I, you know, I wasn't really taught about nutrition or mental health was never a subject or a topic. But at least for me, you know, that stuff inevitably rose to the surface. And it was something that I just had to deal with eventually. And I think that's really where my work in the space of body acceptance and healing my relationship with food and exercise really began. I am on the same page as you 100%. I feel like this is a pillar of wellness that is so often overlooked because we're so focused on what does her body look like and is she the right weight that we negate this other huge, massive component of our overall health and wellness. So when you said stuff started to bubble up, like you couldn't just work it out and and it all sort of rose to the surface, what are you talking about? Yeah. So my college career actually ended early because I started experiencing severe anxiety and depression. That choice was one of the best decisions I ever made. But still until this day, I still carry feelings of failure around it, that I let down my team, I let down my parents to be the first person in my family to go to university was huge. And I felt so much pride in that. And to come home early, it felt like failure. And so it took me a lot to rebuild. And I even find this challenges seep into my work 
being self-employed is this deep, profound fear of failure. Like I'm going to let people down again. And so I have to remind myself, like you making that decision to leave wasn't failure. It was the best thing that you could have done for yourself. And you didn't know any better at the time. I have chills listening to this. I mean, I even went to university and then pulled the shoot because I was like, I can't relive high school again. I can't go and be with the exact same group as much as I love them. I can't, I can't do it. I mean, there's so much trauma in that, in those years of high school and felt the same thing. And still to this day struggle with the fact that I never, I, that I don't have a degree. I'm totally comfortable and confident in it most of the time. But then when I'm with a certain group that, or people that really value that, all of a sudden you start questioning everything that you are. So I'm so glad that you shared this because I think a lot of people have moments where they need to pivot or change or they realize they're in the wrong lane or their mental health is struggling. And of course, we tend to blame ourselves. And yet usually what I see years down the road in people is that the breakdown, the moment of change, that really hard decision that they had to make is actually the starting point or the foundation of the path that led them to where they are now. And so it's really important to always trust that in following what you need and listening to your heart and taking care of yourself that you will be supported and you will land where you're supposed to. But oh, it is hard in the moment. It is not comfortable. And yeah, and it can leave a wound that still pops up. I want to dive into five myths around wellness, and you've come up with some incredible ones that we're going to bust today. Before we dive into that, I just want to bridge the gap between the space where you've left college, you're feeling really low, you're not sure what it is that you're going to do next, to where you are now. Okay. So I came out of college. My parents were like, well, since you're not in school now, you need to get a job. Well, that was a rude awakening, number one. <laughs> Good job, mom and dad. <laughs> right? And, I, and it's funny. My first job wasn't until I was 18 years old because I had always played such competitive sports and I really didn't have time. So, And I thought life was going to come easy to me and I was going to be in the Olympics. So... <laughs> It was a rude awakening. You were on that path. (laughs) I was on that path, yes. And I did play for the junior women's national team. So I very much had the trajectory of going to the Olympics. But things pivoted and things changed. And, you know, I saw an ad on Craigslist and I had been an athlete my entire life and they were hiring personal trainers. And I was like, okay, like I could do that. I love working with people. I love inspiring people. And that's really how things began. When I stepped into that space, when I did become a trainer, I worked in a traditional fitness setting in in your classic gym. And the rhetoric was exactly pain. It was was me reliving my college experience again. No pain, no gain. It was exactly, it was no pain, no gain. And when you fill out these questionnaires, it's like, what are your goals? And you have two options, lose weight, gain muscle, right? Right. And so it never sat right with me. And I eventually broke off and started my own personal training company. And it never felt right doing weigh ins or body compositions. I hated doing it. It made me uncomfortable. It made my clients uncomfortable. I I hated celebrating weight loss and I hated, you know, the discomfort of feeling like not enoughness when somebody didn't. But it was expected. Even though I worked for myself, there was this, again, I worked in a traditional gym setting. So there was still upper management for seeing over, overall like what I should and shouldn't be doing within the gym. Yeah, For me, that was just it. And 
you know, with COVID, I worked up into a traditional gym setting up until COVID happened. The gyms closed down and I was like, enough is enough. I'm going to completely pivot on my own and move my business completely virtually online and set things up exactly the way that I think the structure should be and support people in finding health and wellness beyond their body. Just to go back a little bit there. In 2017, I also went back to school to become a registered holistic nutritionist. Going back to school and understanding nutrition and being in a space where all I was talking about was diet really solidified some unhealthy eating behaviors within me. And so between going through that experience, relaunching my business as a virtual company, it's really just been, I don't know, a continually evolving process of the growth of my business. So and yeah. all so beautifully coming together in such a supportive way, not only for your clients, but for you as well. I think any of us who are coaches are also learning so much every day. I learn so much from the people that I get to work with. And also, again, as you said, just solidifying these lessons and this new form of wellness, which we're going to talk about, into my mind. So I'm curious when – People come to work with you now. Are people asking you to weigh themselves still, or do you feel like you're seeing less of that based on the way that you're coaching? Yeah, absolutely seeing less of it. It's not even on the table because people's bodies, in my opinion, are not even up for discussion when we work together. We're looking at how we can celebrate the non-scale victories and redefining what wellness is. So when I work with somebody, we have an initial consultation that is just purely speaking. There is no measurements. There is no win. There's no body fat calculation. There's no BMI chart. There's nothing except for how do you want to feel in your body and what do you feel like has been the biggest barrier you've experienced in order to feel that. And for Mm. a lot of people, it's not feeling seen or that they can just have a goal of wanting to have more energy, you know? Yeah. Because I think as fitness professionals and people in this space, we're all we've been projecting onto our clients what we think is best for them rather than truly looking at them and asking them, what do you want? What do you think your body needs? How do you see yourself staying well? And now I sit back and I just ask the questions and I help my clients lead themselves through that experience because I believe that everybody has a personal autonomy around their health and wellness. And so my goal is to teach my clients how to be self-accountable because at the end of the day, I'm not always going to be there. So how do you stay healthy without those support systems? And it really comes down to supporting yourself and knowing your reason why you're showing up. So that why, why you're showing up, you mentioned wanting to be seen. I'm curious about that. I think at the end of the day, the root for everybody is to feel connected, to feel like they belong. And I think the wellness and fitness industry has not been diverse. I don't feel like everybody is seen in that space, especially when we look at marketing and representation when it comes to imagery or how we perceive who is well. And so for me, I want people to know that they're seen and that they're accepted in exactly the way that they are and they can experience health and wellness wellness without having to change anything about how their body aesthetically looks. You did a, a reel that we'll share in the show notes that I absolutely loved 
that touched on, I think a question that was asked in the reel is what is something that you will get in trouble for saying out loud? Which of course you're like, ooh, what is this going to be? Oh yeah, I got and lots. And you said, <laughs> yeah, I, I bet, you said wellness is for well people. So the wellness world has greatly capitalized on our interest in being well. And there's become this inflated image of what we need in order to be well, like green juices and $30 yoga classes and this person on our team and this coach and this supplement and that supplement and all of these things that we need, apparently, in order to be well. And the people who can access those things tend to be individuals who have the basic necessities of wellness, like food, shelter, water, a community of some sort, like when we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And now this wellness industry has come into play and we feel like if we can't do all of those things that we are unwell. Unwell. In that post, you're basically saying that the people who are accessing this level of wellness already have a lot of those fundamentals met, and yet they're the ones who are really tapping into the wellness practitioners, coaches. Am I getting this right? Not necessarily practitioners and, and coaches, but they're the ones who are able to therefore afford wellness. And it's really interesting. You broke it down perfectly. When we look at Maslow's hierarchy and needs, we realize that we being well really also means just having your basic necessities. So food, shelter, water, safety, connection. Somebody who meets those needs can be well. They don't need anything beyond those things. Everything beyond that is nice to have. But wellness is different than well-being. And I think that well-being is when we meet those basic needs. Wellness has become this commodified thing that says, I can buy my way into being well. But the reality is you can buy that face cream, you can buy that supplement and still feel unwell. Wellness begins at the foundational level of meeting your basic needs. And we have to, as a society, recognize that not everybody has access to their basic needs. Not everybody has the ability to go for a walk in their neighborhood, which is free, accessible exercise. Not everyone has healthcare. Not everyone has food. Not everyone has even just the basic amount of food, let alone the Whole Foods seven, eight dollar green juice exactly. option. And we leave those people out when we talk about wellness. And I think as fitness professionals and people in this space, we have to remember that accessibility is foundational in creating wellness for everybody. And so, you know, we can sell really high ticket coaching programs and we can work with people who can afford, you know, those wellness and yoga retreats. But we also have to remember to meet everybody where they're at and that not everybody is going to be there and therefore they're not any less worthy of accessing wellness. And even though maybe it's not something that we provide ourselves and I understand that, you know, everybody has a different target market and works with different demographics. We also have to remember though that maybe creating a network of professionals who do offer those services might be a way that you can reach those people to make sure that they are being supported as well. 
Mm, I love that idea. And not only is this an issue in that we're creating a different class structure almost in regards to who wellness is accessible to, but I talk a lot on the show about this image of who is the well woman. Like we can all close our eyes and picture what wellness looks like. And it's usually going to be a fair skinned Caucasian woman in a thin body who has long glossy hair and good skin and very white teeth. And the closer you fit to that model, the more privilege you have and the more access you have. I mean, it's just like you're climbing a mountain and you're already halfway up the mountain and everyone else is starting at the bottom of the mountain based on the way that our society views individuals. So how do you remember to create true wellness in our community, which involves everybody where nobody's left behind. And that could look like scholarships that are offered. That could look like connecting with different people in the community to ensure that individuals even know that our offerings are available. There's it's yeah, it's it's a lot to discuss, maybe not right on this podcast episode, but it's all good things for us to be thinking about. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. And I think that's really what's most important is to have these discussions and to know that we don't have all the answers, yeah. right? And I think that's, don't. that's just it. We can work towards having more inclusivity in wellness. It's happening. It's happening, but we have to keep having these conversations, I do want to dive into those wellness myths that we talked about because I think that we're shifting into a new paradigm of wellness, but it's not yet familiar. And so I asked you, what are five myths that you want to bust or break through in regards to wellness? And let's dive in. Yeah. The first one is that so often we hear you are what you eat. And that, my friends, is not true at all. <laughs> oh my goodness. If you eat a potato, you are not a potato. And I think that there is this idea in wellness that we should attach what we eat to our morals. And that if you eat, quote unquote, clean foods or good foods or healthy foods, that you in turn are more superior than somebody else who doesn't. And so I think, you know, when we look at our food system, demonizing certain foods while elevating other foods really attaches that concept of morality. And then we beat ourselves up when we go against those morals, right? And so, you know, I think that's one of the biggest myths that we need to bust, which is you are not what you eat. If you eat a slice of pizza, you're not a bad person. If you eat a green salad, you're not a better person. I love this. And we hear this dialogue all the time in our society. Like, oh my God, it was so bad today. I had chips and then brownies. Or I don't know, I've been really good. I'm doing this cleanse. And so we attach our own self-worth to the way that we're eating or the way that we're moving our body. And we want to be really careful about that dialogue that we hold because we know that 70% of women are struggling with disordered forms of eating and all of this plays into that. Now, 
I was driving home from Whistler yesterday, drinking my green juice, and then I got hungry, so I got some fries from McDonald's, which are my favorite, and I'm eating my fries, and I'm drinking my green juice, and I'm laughing to myself thinking, (laughs) and I bet people don't know that I eat fast food sometimes, and can also eat it while having a green juice. And so I'm curious to know this whole statement around you are what you eat. I feel like the original intention behind it was what you put in your body will impact your mind. It will impact your like cellular structure and your physiology. Do you feel like there's truth to part of that saying in that you are not good or bad based on what you eat, but what we put in our body can impact our overall well-being. I look at it this way, and you're right. That is in the traditional sense, I think, what people think when they think of you are what you eat. But one thing I learned as a nutritionist that has always stuck with me is that you are not what you eat. You are what you absorb. And we have to think Mm -hmm. about how digestion impacts our absorption. When we eat under stressful conditions – For example, we feel like we're guilty and shameful for eating that slice of cake. That is going to impact how that cake is absorbed. When we are experiencing stress and discomfort in our body, our digestive system shuts blood away from our digestive tract and it creates adrenaline. And so we're not digesting our food properly and therefore we're not properly absorbing our food and therefore we are feeling tired and exhausted and undernourished. And if we are eating with stress, if we are eating with restriction, which is creating stress in the body, then therefore we are not going to absorb our nutrients and therefore we're going to feel depleted and unwell. Yes, yes, yes. And also I think one of the things that has been most pivotal in healing my relationship with food and in the work that I do with others is this understanding that restriction really is what causes us to become so obsessed and to have the extreme cravings around food. And so often we end up in this space where it's like a swinging pendulum where we're restricting and then binging. So what we generally find is that when we let go of the restricting and all foods become neutral and we're not creating this rigid way of eating, that with time as we practice eating intuitively, that those cravings start to subside and we're not existing in this place where food has so much power over us. I think we fear sometimes that we're only going to eat the pizza and cake and cupcakes if we don't have rules and rigidity. And that's not ultimately what happens at all. Our body actually does crave things like vegetables and fruits and beautiful carbohydrates and a lovely pasta and lemon and like all of these things that it intuitively knows that it needs. Absolutely. I could not have said that better myself. And I always tell my clients this, you know, this cute little study where they take children and they give them a bag of M&Ms and they say, you can have all the M&Ms, but you just can't eat the yellow ones. And they leave the room. And what M&Ms do you think the kids eat? Only the yellow ones, right? (laughs) And I always think back to that because within us, there's this little person and our childhood self. And our childhood self is rebellious. And nobody likes to be told what to do. And so there is always going to create that rebellion and that pushback. And so when it comes to eating, the same thing applies. When we tell ourselves we're not allowed chocolate, we're going to see chocolate everywhere. And so then we're trying to exercise more and more willpower. And we know that in the long term, willpower doesn't work. And we're more likely to just binge. So 
yeah, it's finding that middle ground, like you said, finding that space where we can say all foods are neutral and suddenly the novelty of it wears off. And so I often work with my clients in a process called habituation, really becoming habituated with certain foods that you feel most out of control around. Yes, initially, we're going to be excited about that bag of Lay's <laughs> potato chips in there. But you know what? By the second bag, by the third bag, by the fourth bag, whatever bag it takes to get to, suddenly it's like, oh man. I could really use a carrot right now. Absolutely. I call that the honeymoon period. And people are both enjoying the honeymoon period and freaking out a little bit because they're like, ah, is this ever going to stop? But the honeymoon period always ends. And then that desire and passion that you have for the bag of chips kind of starts to fizzle out. And on the other side, it just doesn't have that much control over you. Love it. What's number two? Number two is that a healthy body or a fit body has a certain look. And we talked about this a little bit earlier when you spoke to the well woman and how we envision a well woman. This really comes down to conditioning around what we've seen. When people say wellness, what's being advertised to us visually? It's the same person over and over and over. And so we therefore start to aim to try to put ourselves within that box or try to make changes that are going to bring us closer to that that ideal image. And I think this is hilarious. When I was younger, I had this vision board that I created for myself. I think lots of people are in health or have health goals. They create these vision boards of like, who's inspiring their body? People can't see me right now, but I am a five foot two black woman, okay, with a big booty and a small waist. My vision board woman (laughs) was exactly what Erin described earlier, okay? Like, I could not be further from this person. Even if I did all of the things, there was no way possible that I would ever look like that. And even when I made that photo, I was like, I don't have to look like that, but I want to look closer to that. And I think that's where the problem really lies because it really justifies why we can use that image. Mine were the Victoria's Secret models. I'm pretty sure most people listening to this at some point or another have had that image of the individual that they wanted to look like or be closer to on their screensaver, on their fridge door, you know, in the back of their mind. And that's marketing. That is what marketing is all about. It is this ideal, this aspirational image that we want to welcome into our life. The reason we want to welcome it into our life is because we believe that looking like that will bring us the things that we desire most in life, love, connection, more confidence, self-esteem. And it's very dangerous. I mean, to just put it bluntly, it's dangerous because we've got so many girls who are are starving themselves and excessively working out and unhappy with who they are because they're trying to live up to this model that now doesn't even exist in real life. Even the people in those images. The people in the images don't even look like them. (laughs) No, they don't. It's crazy. And, you know, it kind of just brings me back to that idea that's like, well, what is a healthy body then? What is a fit body? And it's the body you have. That's it, plain and simple. Like, it it doesn't need more than that. You have a healthy body if you have your health and you wake up every day feeling you have energy and are vigorated and and you're not living with illness, that is health. And so you can accomplish 
everything you want in the body you have right now. You don't have to pursue a body outside of your own in order to experience what you're truly desiring. Because when we peel back the body of that well woman, what's underneath, it's the privileges that come with that body that she has. That's what we're really desiring. So how do we create that for ourselves in the body that we currently have now? Maybe that woman has lots of friends because that's what we see in those advertisements. Or maybe that person has a really beautiful relationship that we're seeking. How do we then cultivate those things for ourselves in the body that we have now, rather than saying that she's attributed those things in her life because of the body that she has? Yes, 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 yes. Oh, and before we move on to the next one, I just want to say as well, there are lots of people who are in that smaller, thin body that are not well, right? I've been there personally, and I've worked with lots of people who aren't, who are in a thinner body, and they are anxious or depressed or struggling with disordered eating or feeling low energy, right? Those things don't come with the size of your body. Now, what about the people who are saying, well, I'm in a bigger body or I'm I'm not happy with my body and I'm not I don't feel like I have a lot of energy right now. My mental health is suffering. I don't feel like I can move as easily as I want to. What would you say to those individuals? I would definitely ask them, well what is it that you need in order to have more energy? Mm. Right? Simple. Maybe it's I need to go to bed earlier. Maybe yeah. it's I need to turn off my blue light. <laughs> Maybe I have to shut down off my phone at night. Yeah. Maybe, I, Maybe need- I need to stop running so far because yeah. that's not actually serving me right now. Yeah, yeah, that's just it. And to take it back from how do we accomplish these health goals of, you know, having more energy, you know, drinking more water, et cetera, and detaching them from the aesthetic aspect of fitness or wellness in general. Because you can accomplish all of those things without having to make any change visually in your body. When we feel good internally, we radiate that on the external, right? And I'm not talking about the way that your body looks in terms of its shape and size. It's how we carry ourselves, how we show up in the world that exudes that internal health. Yeah. Here for it. Okay. Take me on to the next one. Yeah. Um, This actually leads perfectly into the next one, which is that this myth that we are going to be happier and feel more fulfilled and be more valuable and have more worthiness in a thinner body or a body that is different in shape and size than the one you currently have right now. What we see on the surface level isn't necessarily everything that's going on. Behind those images, we don't see the struggle. We don't see the disordered behaviors. And so we're comparing our bodies to these bodies of others, and we don't have the full story. I look at it this way too. When we, when we look at the wellness industry and, you know, capitalism under wellness, I always tell my clients, you know, the wellness industry has created the insecurity and then has created the product or service to sell you how to fix that insecurity that it's created in the first place. Yes. Right? And so we have to take a step back then and ask ourselves, is this really an insecurity that I have or one that I've been told that I have? If it's not what I actually feel, then why am I carrying this around? And I need to put this down because it's not mine to carry. I think that's so, so important because when we look at these images and we look at marketing when it comes to health and wellness and we're comparing our bodies to these ideals and we think we're going to have more, be more, to some degree, yes, that's true because 
I'm not going to diminish the fact that those people do have more privilege. Absolutely. But I also want to say that we can achieve many of those things in the body that we currently have now. And we don't have to try to buy into these insecurities that have been projected onto us. Agreed a thousand times over. What is number four? Number four is this idea that high intensity exercise is more beneficial than low intensity exercise or more gentler Mm. forms of movement. In my opinion, the exercise routine that you can maintain is the healthiest routine. Absolutely. Because if you run every single day for seven days and then can't do anything else for the rest of the month, or you can do low impact yoga five times a week and do that all month long, at the end of the month, who do you think is going to feel healthier? So it comes down to what can you do that A, brings you joy, and how long can you do it for? So yes, it can be cool to like want to run that half marathon, but what's actually sustainable? What's then beyond that marathon? Is it you beating yourself up for not running as much as you were? Because that isn't sustainable fitness or sustainable health, right? So when it comes down to this idea of high intensity versus low intensity exercise, one, again, looking at it from a new neutral approach, one is not better than the other. It's the one that you can do long-term. I love this. It's similar to the food piece as well. I'm thinking about a couple friends that are really into their more traditional workout routines and they're doing it four or five days a week. And the dialogue that we have around that, like, oh, you're so good. You're so disciplined. And oh, I'm not doing that. I can only get in 20 minutes of this or that. But um, so really, again, dropping that dialogue and expectation, recognizing we're all in different bodies that require different things and in different seasons of our life, right? So everyone who's listening right now, maybe just pause and think about what that would mean for you. Is it going for a walk? Is it gentle stretching? Maybe you love riding your bike. Sometimes you can also think about what you enjoyed when you were a kid as well, before you know the world started to influence your idea of wellness. I totally agree. Beautiful. Number five. The last one is we can practice body positivity. We can practice body neutrality. We can practice body acceptance. We can work on our self-image and still not be 100% loving of our body all the time. That's such a big myth, I think, that we see when we look at people who speak to body positivity and body acceptance. Sometimes it comes across as if they love their body all the time and that they always say nice things in the mirror and there's nothing that they don't love about it. And, you know, they poke that little pinch of fat and they say, I love you so much every day. And let's be <laughs> honest, like, that is not the case. <laughs> you know, no. we can be practicing these things, we can be working on these things, but know that it's this always ever evolving process. You know, I work with my clients in an eight-week program that really helps them to disconnect from the body distractions and, you know, the association with being in a smaller body is better, et cetera. But at the end of the day, I say, this is eight weeks. Like, this is a drop in the ocean. This work is going to continually keep evolving for you. You've reached this point now where the seeds are planted, but you have to continue to keep watering them. There are going to be days where you're going to feel like you've taken 10 steps back in the space, but know that the path forward is always there for you. Sometimes we need to walk before we can run. We're not going to go through these eight weeks and feel like our life is like 
I never have to look back ever again. We have to continue to keep putting in the work because we are in a world that continually tells us that we are not enough. And even though we can have done all the work in the world, we can work with the best therapists, the best coaches, we can read the best books, we can do all of the work, but know that we have to continue to keep doing the work. Yes. I mean, I think about body acceptance and even wellness as this spectrum. Let's use body acceptance to start off with. We have a negative body image, a neutral body image, and then at this other end of the spectrum, you have a positive body image. I and many people set point landed in that area on the spectrum of really negative for a long time. And with practice and understanding and and learning about diet culture and starting to trust my body more, that set point has absolutely moved up on the spectrum to a space of much more neutrality and positivity. However, sometimes it dips back into the negative zone, but I'm faster to come back to that space of neutrality or positivity because the set point has moved up on the spectrum. So I think we can understand that we can do this work and show up for ourselves and that having these conversations and working with professionals, that it can help move that set point up so that our average space that we're living in feels a lot better, but we have to be realistic about the fact that there are going to be dips and there are going to be setbacks. The beautiful thing is, is that along the way, as we're moving that set point up, we're often picking up a lot of tools. We're learning a lot about ourselves. We're understanding, how do I get back to that space? And we get there a lot faster is is my experience personally. Absolutely. Like you said, you do pick up those tools and it's really about this reframing, I find that's really, really important. If you just can learn to catch yourself when you have a negative thought and you're not in that space of just being automatically internally saying mean things about yourself, step one is just recognition. Just becoming aware of how often and how negative sometimes that internal critical voice can be. Because if we're not even aware of it, we can't catch it. But when we do become aware of it, then we can acknowledge, hey, That's not necessarily true. And we can start to reframe those beliefs and those stories that we carry about ourselves. And so that's why that meter, it does move up a little bit because the more we're able to catch ourselves, the more we're able to reinforce, hey, that was a a silly thought or like that's not necessarily true. And sometimes we don't even have to believe it quite yet to start to initiate those changes they will come in, in eventually, but it's just allowing yourself to be a work in progress. Allow yourself to be messy because I have found in my experience, the messier I am, the more that I've learned and the more that I've connected with other messy people. Oh, hell yes. Messy person <laughs> right over here. And uh, I've just loved this conversation so much. Can you do a quick recap of the five myths that we just busted? And- yeah. First one is this idea of that you are what you eat. No, you're not. Do not attach morality to the foods that you eat. You're not better nor worse for the foods that you eat. And know that you are not what you eat, you are what you absorb. So focus on improving your digestive system and knowing that when we eat foods under a state of stress, that we are not going to absorb them and therefore be more nutritionally depleted. Number two, a healthy body doesn't have a certain look. A fit body can take on a diverse visual 
it doesn't have to be this thin ideal that we see all over the place. The third one is that having a healthy body image doesn't always mean loving yourself all the time, 100% of the time. It is this ever-flowing, evolving journey that, you know, does take steps forward and it takes steps back. And I look at it as every time that I've taken a step back, it's launched me that much further forward. I look at it as a lesson that I didn't quite learn yet. So the universe is having me go through it again. And then I come out the other side of it stronger and feeling more grounded in knowing myself. So know that you're exactly where you need to be. And sometimes you have to go through the process a couple of times to really learn it. (laughs) Mm, Beautiful. Number four is thinking that losing weight or changing your body is going to bring you more happiness, more joy, be more valuable, have more acceptance, etc. We can work towards all of those things without having to utilize our body whatsoever or have our body be a piece of those goals whatsoever. And last but not least is that high intensity exercise is not more beneficial than low intensity exercise. The exercise that is best for you and your body and is sustainable is the kind that you can do for the rest of your life and that you enjoy. I Love it. All of these myths, you just busted them all. I hope everybody who's listening right now found this helpful and perhaps has helped you reframe your own relationship with health and wellness. Think about a few things a little bit differently. Kelsey, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can everybody find you and what do you have coming up that our audience and anybody who's listening right now can reach out to you to get more support with? The best place to uh, follow me is on Instagram at healthy underscore with underscore Kelsey. You can also find me on YouTube where I offer body positive workouts under 30 minutes for at home. And my channel is healthy with Kelsey. And I also offer uh, workout classes live streamed every single week that are free of toxic uh, language around body and diet. That is through Patreon. And you can also find me there at Healthy with Kelsey. Last but not least, there is my eight-week group coaching program that is called the Emotional Eating Recovery Program. And it's rooted in all the beautiful things that we discussed today in this conversation around intuitive eating around joyful movement, moving with mindfulness, rewiring your brain from negative self-talk, and really learning how to have that healthy relationship with food in your body. Amazing. You're truly incredible. And I can't wait to continue to watch you bring this important messaging to people everywhere. I will make sure that I link to everything that you just mentioned down below in the show notes. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with anybody else who might benefit. And let Kelsey and I know what resonated with you the most by leaving a review for us. We read them all and absolutely love and appreciate you for taking the time to do so. All right, everyone, take what resonated the most, leave the rest behind, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this week's episode. Please take a moment to rate, review, or follow on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with someone that you think could benefit. Join the Rob Talks community at Rob Talks, And remember, it's your story, your body, your mind, and your journey. So think about what resonates with you and leave the rest behind. I'll see you next week. Do you ever feel like you're struggling through motherhood? You're not alone. 
I'm Erica Jossa, host of the MomWell podcast, therapist and mom of three. Join me each Wednesday as I sit down with guests, including psychologists, pediatricians, psychiatrists, fertility specialists, lactation consultants, and more to unravel the myths of motherhood. With expert advice, practical tips, self-love, and some coping skills to help you along the way, you can become the mother you want to be. Listen to the MomWell podcast at momwell.com slash listen or on your favorite podcast platform.